Welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm Josh Spector, and I am your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, welcome. This podcast exists to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. It's a really simple format. Here's how it works. In each episode, a guest comes on and asks me three questions. We talk about them for about 10 minutes. I hopefully share some tips and strategies that will be helpful to them and you. Not a lot of fluff, lots of actionable tips that you can put to use. And hopefully it's well worth their time and yours. Today, my guest is Roger Nairn. Roger helps brands tell stories that matter as the co-founder and CEO of JAR Audio, a podcast production agency that works exclusively with brands like Amazon, Cirque du Soleil, and Amex. You can find him on Twitter at JAR underscore Roger and on LinkedIn, where he shares insights and knowledge about how brands can take advantage of the growing podcast space. In a former life, he led client service teams for agencies, including DDB, Cassette, working with Four Seasons, Walmart, and Lamborghini. Lots of impressive brands and names there. And I met Roger on Twitter. We connected a bunch, and I think actually he sent me some questions well before I started the podcast. And I had said, I said, these are really good. And I think I'm going to start a podcast at some point and <laughs> we should talk about them on there. So I appreciate your patience. And hey, Roger, it is nice to meet you and welcome to the show. Hey, Josh, it's great to meet you. That's what we do is we start podcasts, whether it's directly or indirectly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If anybody was willing to wait for me to start a podcast, <laughs> you were probably like, oh, I, I, I totally get that. And it, I'm a big and I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours and, and get a ton of knowledge. So when the opportunity came up to ask you some questions, I, I had to jump in it. Thank you. It's so funny. I just realized like a couple of weeks ago I had on uh, Kevin Shen, which is a great episode, by the way, for anyone listening, you should check it out. And he is a like home video setup, home studio expert. And mine is non-existent and terrible. So I realized like, and now I'm having the podcast expert on. So I'm really, I'm really putting, <laughs> putting myself, putting myself through it. But, uh, but that's, that's one of the great things about podcasts is you, you use it as an opportunity to meet some interesting people and, and, yeah. and learn, learn some yourself. Yeah. Cool. So let's jump into it. Let's start with what is the first thing you want to know? Yeah, for sure. So like I mentioned, we produce podcasts, we produce podcasts with brands. We work with some incredibly talented audio folks, we're always having to balance the, the, you know, so the question of how do you balance the need to push the creative envelope with the need to make money? We're obviously a business, but we also want to produce the absolute best work. So mm -hmm. I, I just, I had to ask you that question. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I think it's something, one of the reasons I liked it and thought it would be a great thing to talk about on this show is that I think it's something that almost every creative entrepreneur struggles with or has to figure out in some way, right? Because I use the term creative entrepreneur to indicate that they have that sort of desire. They have that blend of artist and business in them, that they want to do really good creative work. It's not just about making money. But they also don't just want to be an artist and just make creative stuff and not make money. So I think this this question sort of gets to the heart of a lot of what I who I think my audience is and and who I am as well. So I'll start here. I think the first thing is it's important to understand that I don't see creativity and making money as mutually exclusive. I think that that they're actually very connected. And I think it's a really important mindset because I think a lot of people, you know, even in the question, how do I balance that suggests that they're sort of these two opposite ends 
of the spectrum. It's kind of like a work-life balance thing where people go, oh, how do I have a work-life balance? Well, they don't need to be separate. You can have, yes, they are different things, but they can be connected. So to me, I approach everything with the mindset of just because something is creative, artistic, or holds to a high creative standard doesn't mean that it can't make money. And just because I'm doing something to make money doesn't mean that it can't be creatively fulfilling and high quality creative. And in fact, I actually think you're most likely to be successful if you do find that merger of those of those two things. The most successful creative work has also taken into account making money on it. And the most successful, most financially successful work typically tends to be high quality creative. So that's, so I think along those lines, the other thing I would say is, it's not about, and this is how I approach it, but also I think how I recommend people think about it. It's not about being creative for creative sake. And it's about using your creative skills or creating high quality creative work to provide value to people. And if you do that, value ultimately leads to money. So where people I think get in trouble, not trouble, but I should say this. If you're doing something purely as a creative project, or purely as a creative exercise, you just want to create, using the create, word create a lot here, but you just want to make something that seems cool. That's fine, but that's art or that's a hobby. <laughs> it's not a business. It's not, about, it's not about making money, which is fine. But I think where people get in trouble is when you're doing something purely as a creative exercise and then try to monetize it. And then you get frustrated and go, well, I made this really cool creative thing why isn't it accomplishing my goals or why isn't it making me money? And vice versa, right? You just set out to make money and then decide you randomly want to have fun creatively and then go, well, why isn't it working? You see that a lot with commercials and actually like, you know, you'll see advertising campaigns that win awards because they're so incredibly creative and yet they didn't drive any sales, right? Right. And they fell in love with the creative and ignored, ignored the other part. So for me, I, and this is what I would recommend is I try to get very clear with myself from the start about why I'm doing something. Again, there's nothing wrong with doing a purely creative project, but if I'm doing a purely creative project, I can't necessarily expect to make money from it. I might you, make money from it. And when you yeah, say that ahead. you get very, when you say that you get very clear, do you have a sort of set of values in your head or a checklist that you kind of go through to say, this is the right project for me or not the right project? I don't have a specific checklist, but I, I think about why am I doing this? Right. So the, so an example I use, and I'll have this conversation with people about newsletters all the time. And by the way, like we're, we're talking about making money, but it also applies to just audience growth or anything. Mm -hmm. So you'll see a lot of people who start a newsletter or a blog, or for that matter, a podcast or, or videos, whatever it is. And they just want to talk about what they want to talk about. I want to write about sports one week and politics one week. And I want to talk about what happened, what my kids did next week and, and whatever. And that's what they're passionate about. And that is a creatively driven project. Totally fine. Where it becomes not fine is they do that and then they get frustrated that they're not growing an audience. For it. Mm -hmm. And it's like you went to that project because you wanted to do it for yourself, not to provide value to others, which is fine. The value you're providing is yourself. It's a creative exercise, but you can't then get frustrated when other people aren't interested in every little thing that you're doing, right? So, so if it were me, if I were starting a newsletter like that, 
I would ask myself, what do I really want to get out of this? Like, what is my priority? And again, for me, I tend to look for that sweet spot. It's interesting. I've written for years. I've written blog posts and newsletters and published, you know, uh, I studied journalism. I've never written a diary. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I think in retrospect is because as much as I love writing, some part of me wants to share it and provide value to others. Because if it was really just a creative exercise or a, you know an exercise for me to be writing, somewhere along the line in all the writing I've done, I would have written a diary. And for whatever reason, I never had any interest in that. And I think it's because part of me always wants it to be to help other people and not necessarily make money, although at times it, it does make money. So that's, that's where I would start. Someone was, you know, and for example, like I know you work with a lot of brands and that kind of thing, right? If someone came to you and said they wanted to start a podcast, you know, if I were in your shoes, and I'm sure this is part of what you do, like that first conversation is like, what are we actually trying to get out of it? For right? Sure. Are we trying to drive sales? Is this about brand awareness? Is this about helping your cust- existing customers, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the exact process we'll go through. We'll you know, get a good understanding of, of who the audience is. Does that audience already exist or are you trying to attract a new audience? Getting as much clarity up front is, is, is going is gonna to get us into the, you know, as, as best of a place as possible. Yeah. And I think just sort of, you know, coming full circle, I would say, you know, it's less about finding a balance between creativity and monetization. And it's more about finding alignment mm. or being deliberate in what you want to get out of your effort. Mm-hmm. It's fine to do just something as a creative exercise. It's fine to do something just to make money. It's great to do something that checks both boxes, but you want to be deliberate in, in what you're trying to do. And I think it's really important to, you know, again, sort of there's one overall takeaway from this. I think it would be, to have that mindset that they're not mutually exclusive because I do think people go into a lot of work with that assumption and it paralyzes them because they're like, oh, I want to make money, but I also want to be creatively fulfilled. And they feel like they have to choose a path. The sweet spot is, is both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've done this work. You're, you're, you're making money from the work. You're happy with the work. You're fulfilled with the work, but inevitably it's, it's going to, you know, potentially burn you out. How do you as a creative avoid burnout? The shorter answer is I don't always. So like, you know, like everybody, I have definitely over the years had my share of burnout a couple, you know, a couple of times in sort of big ways where I've really like flat out, you know, burned out. So I have learned a lot. I think a lot of times people come on and answer questions like this and they they leave that part out and they're like, oh, that guy, you know, like it's funny, even your question, even the <laughs> assumption that I avoid burnout comes from a place of like, that guy seems like he's figured it out. So I think it's really important to say that, you know, I definitely gotten much better. And I, for the most part, I'd say I do avoid burnout now, but that wasn't always how it was, right? The things that I'm going to share with you now and say, these have been learned as a result of experiences that were not amazing, right? So anyone that is feeling that stuff, feeling burned out, or, you know, it's not like some people just have smooth, smooth sailing. So I'm going to share a bunch of different things that a couple sort of mindsets and how I think about burnout or how I've learned to think about burnout. And then also some sort of specific, I guess, tactics or habits or strategies that have, that have helped me. The first is, and it's funny because I say this quote all the time and I don't know where it comes from. Like there's a million different sources for it, I think. But 
the idea that you can say yes to anything, but you can't say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. And that is a really important concept. Same thing, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. And I think especially for solopreneur, entrepreneur types who they have, you know, they, they pursued this path because it gives them a lot of freedom to work on what they want to work on. And they tend to have a million different things that they want to do and they see opportunities everywhere. And I used to take on way too much. I used to be like, oh, I could do this and this could work and I'm going to do this. And, and I think starting with this truism or this mindset of like, okay, I can do anything I want, but I can't do everything I want. Mm-hmm. And everything that I choose to take on is a choice at least keep some consciousness because before, and what I think a lot of people do is they're just looking at things in a vacuum. Like, could I do this? Should I do this? Yeah, great. But they're ignoring all the other stuff that they've already said yes to. And then they wake up one day and you have a million things on your plate and you're burned out and it's, and it's too much. And how, do, so, how, do, how does burnout manifest for you? How do you know, how do you know when burnout, when you either are burned out or it's, or it's potent, potentially coming? So I would say I used to have no idea. Basically. And I would, you know, it's so obvious in retrospect, but I, you know, I, I've had jobs that even when I was working full-time jobs and before I was working for myself, that were like massively stressful jobs. And I would literally have conversations and, and go like, I have no stress in my life. I don't know why, like, this is really easy. And I look back on it now and I'm like, wow, like that was, you want to talk about like lack of self-awareness. Like that was crazy. Right. Right. Now. I now I'm able to sort of see and feel like, okay, I feel like I'm starting to take on too much. I'm feeling a little crammed. If I'm looking at like my schedule for a day or a week and I'm going like, Hey, I don't want to be this busy. Like I need some, I need some space or I, I need some whatever. So I'm, I'm able to start, start to like anything, right. You start to get a feel for kind of what is too much. And I think one of the things that happens now when I start to feel that is I go into like what I call, I go into no mode, right? When I start to feel like my calendar's too busy, there's too much stuff going on, everything sort of becomes a quick no. So stuff that I otherwise might do, or I'm just like, all right, I got to shut it down. Like things that, you know, like, okay, I'm not going to record a podcast next week or I'm going to, whatever it is. Obviously there's some things you have to do, Mm -hmm. but I kind of transition into that for a little while. How can I start saying no to stuff to kind of bring some of that back down? It's definitely more art than science, right? You kind of go by feel, but I, you know, I've learned to sort of feel when one of those signs is definitely like feeling like there's just too much on my plate Mm -hmm. uh, and feeling like I feel this less now than I used to, but feeling like I'm being pulled in a million different directions especially working as like a consultant, like, oh, there's lots of people. Ask- I mean, look, I have a podcast about people coming on asking me questions, right? Mm-hmm. But when, when I get to feel like, oh, there's 20 different people asking me for things all the time and they're not all work-related, right? It might be, you know, my parents asking me to help them with their computer <laughs> problem or, you know, the accountant needs my tax info or whatever. Like there comes that point where you're like, there's too many people pulling on me. And I need to try to step back and, and sort of, like I said, go into no mode. Speaking of no mode, I think it's really the most helpful skill you can have for dealing with an avoiding burnout is learning how to say no and getting better at saying. I'll add a link in the show notes. I've actually written a blog post that literally includes like templates to cut and paste and turn down things, right? So if people invited me to go on their 
podcast or interviews, or can I pick your brain or can I buy you coffee? If you create some templates, it just makes it much easier to say no. And I think in general, looking for ways to make it easier for you to say no, which is never easy, but is, is helpful. I went through You're a period of time. No. I, I went through a period of time where I was terrible at saying no. I was, I was, it's, I was it's really I was, hard. I was a yes for everything, and I, and I, it took time, and eventually I learned that saying no to one thing is saying yes to something else. Yep. And you create that space, and and you know you're you're giving yourself a a, a gift. Yeah. And by the way, that also it applies to like you know again as a consultant that applies to clients too, right? Totally. Learning that you don't have to say yes to every opportunity that comes your way and saying yes to a potential client that is eh, my, just, just okay. You have to realize that may be preventing you from being able to say yes to a client that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a, every yes has a, a cost to it. But if you're a, if you're in a, you know, a new paid creative and you're just starting out or you're consulting or, or, mm -hmm. and you need, you need to build your book, you need to build your client yeah. list, you need to get out there. How do you know when it's time to start saying no versus kind of taking on a few of the things that you might not necessarily love, but you kind of yeah. need to do it to kind of get going? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely evolves, right? As you go and as you're, you know, the amount of opportunities you have coming your way and financially and all of that sort. And also you learn what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Early on, exactly. Like I, like everyone else, it's like, oh, if they're going to pay me to do that and I can do that, why won't I do that? Right? right. And then you take on a few clients that you're running Facebook ads for and you're like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> or you, or, or you leave your job and you're like, I got to keep the lights on, you know? Right. <laughs> so, right. Right. And so yeah. it's like, so, you know, once, you know, once I realized like, and one thing that I would do that I do fairly regularly, at least on a yearly basis and sometimes more is I look at all the people I've worked with and all the work I've done and sort of go of this, what did I really like doing? And what did I least like? So if I looked at that and I'll use the Facebook ads as an example, and I was like, the Facebook ad clients were fine. They were happy. It worked. But I'd rather help people with their newsletters than do Facebook ads for them. So I then sort of phase out of that and go like, you know what? I don't want every Facebook ad client I was taking on with one less newsletter I client I could take on hypothetically or whatever. So I think analyzing like what's the stuff you most enjoy doing? What's the stuff you least enjoy doing? And then trying to optimize for that at least helps you get a mindset of this is where I'm going as opposed to just, I say yes to everything. You know, I think it's important to really take a step back and look at what you're, what you're enjoying or not. A couple other, a couple other things that I've done that have been helpful. One, and again, I can't remember where I first heard this, but it's a really good policy, not easy to stick with, but a good policy that... When I start something new, I stop something old. So, and this actually applies not only to sort of big projects, but it can also apply to things as small as meetings. So every time you agree to a recurring meeting, one other recurring meeting should go away. As opposed to, we always say yes and add stuff and then you have too much stuff. So the other thing that this does, especially when you, when you talk about projects, is it forces you to really consider, okay, let's say I want to start this newsletter or whatever. Well, if I have to stop something that's taking up relatively equal time, do I want to start it bad enough that I'm willing to get rid of this other thing? Mm -hmm. So for me, as the kind of person who would start lots of stuff all the time, it also creates a check 
and this goes directly, this start something new, stop something old, directly fits in with you can say yes to anything, but not yes to everything. So now I'm making choices on each project, which helps prevent burnout and taking too much, but also makes you way more deliberate in where you choose to invest your time. Do I really want to do this new project or I'm just sort of excited in the moment? Am I excited enough to abandon this other thing? And also when you sort of force yourself to abandon something, it also forces you to analyze what am I spending time on that maybe is not really worth it. If I say, okay, I'm going to add this new weekly meeting and I'm like, well, I got to find a weekly meeting or something that I'm spending an hour a week on to get rid of. It forces a really interesting process of like, where am I spending my time? If I had to get rid of an hour, if I had to free up an hour a week, what would go? And you'll usually find that you're doing some stuff that really probably needed to go anyway. So I think that can be helpful. Another simple thing is everybody has a to-do list and so do I. To-do lists are interesting because they're never ending and they always, basically, if you think about it, let's say you have 10 things on your to-do list and you cross off three of them today. Yeah, you feel good about crossing off the three but really you just see the seven things that you didn't do, right? So to-do lists inherently make you feel bad and make you feel burned out. So one of the things that I'll do a lot of times, especially when I'm starting to feel burned out or whatever, is I'll look at my to-do list and I'll go like, what are the two or three, usually it's three or less, but it could be, I guess, up to five, depending what they are. What are the three things that if I just do these three things today and nothing else, it will be enough, quote unquote, enough for it to have been a productive good day. And I call it an enough list. And I will go literally set up a separate list and go, these are the three things I'm doing today. And if I get those three things done, even if I do nothing else, great day, right? And those three things are the ones that are gonna be the most impactful, the most important. I can do more and I will do more, but now I'm staring at a list of three versus a list of 10 with seven things that I didn't, Way less anxiety inducing. Yeah, way less anxiety inducing. And again, the, the realization that I am not, no one is going to get everything on their to-do list done every day. You're just not. And what really matters is like, you know, and to be honest, if you get your three most important things done in a day, if you really did that every day, you would be incredibly productive. Yeah. You know, like massively productive. And then one la one last thing is, well, two last things. So one is there's a bunch of sort of core life habits I have. Like I, you know, stretch in the morning. I walk for 30 minutes. I, well, now we have a newborn. So sleep is not quite, not walk, quite as. You walk constant. around their room at 2 a.m. Yeah, as, yeah. as it once was, but. <laughs> it still you know, stops. It still steps. Right. No, yeah. no notifications on my phone. Don't look at my phone the first 30 minutes or last 30 minutes of the day. No phone in my bedroom. I don't feel pressure to reply to emails right away. I'll get to them when I get to them. So little things like that, that help control the inputs. I think when people like allow anything to hit them at any point, that can be difficult. And then the last thing I would say, and this was a lesson, I, I used to work for the Academy of Motion Pictures and the Oscars, and I oversaw digital media and, and marketing for them. And I did, I worked on nine Oscar shows which as you can imagine, were plenty stressful, yeah. especially as you, as you got down to down the stretch run. But one of the things, so the first few years, I would feel really super stressed out, really burned out, all of that. And it would grow as you got closer to show day, et cetera. But what I realized was that 
while there was a general energy and stressfulness that would rise that final week leading into the show, most of my work, aside from show day, most of my work was kind of done by that point. So like I, we had already prepared and done deals and we, you know, we knew what we were doing. And so what was interesting is for most of the people that I worked with those last few days was ma majorly like stress inducing because it was getting busier and busier and you're on site and all that stuff. But it, it took me actually a few years to realize, but that's actually their stress. Like my most stressful time aside from show day is actually a few weeks before trying to get everything planned and in place. And when I realized that, and I think this is applicable to lots of people, that you want to be careful that you're not just absorbing the stress of the environment and other people's stuff. Once I realized like, yeah, everyone else is freaking out because this is crunch time for them, but that's not actually my reality. So why am I feeling this like increasing? Like I'm in good shape. Like my busiest time was a couple of weeks ago and show day, will, you know, will be show day. But I think that's true in a lot of environments and not just work environments, but also family environments, friends, coworkers, whatever. It's very easy to absorb other people's stuff. And to the extent that you can take a step back and go, well, wait a minute, like, am I really that stressed out or <laughs> am I just in a stressful environment? Yeah, makes sense. Love that. Cool. So let's get to your third question. What's the third yeah. thing you want to know? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, a lot of artists are are selling their work direct to audiences. But then a lot of times the people you're working with, potentially clients, are involved in the actual creative process it, itself. And that's something that we do a lot mm -hmm. when we're producing our podcasts. How do you how do you get your clients in, in, in this case, but non-creative, let's call them, how do you get them to trust you in that creative process? Good question. I have a few thoughts about this, but let me start with, do you have a specific example or a hypothetical example that you want to sort of give me? Yeah. I mean, we produce podcasts on behalf of brands. Brands are obviously, you know, involved in the, the concepting of a show, let's say, for example. Right. And, you know, we are very much experts in this place, but we also want our mm -hmm. clients to be involved in the decision making. Yeah. Sometimes the, 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 you know, they don't necessarily trust our, our uh, recommendations um, mm -hmm. on certain creative elements. And we like to improve on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like those are really, the, uh, those are always tricky conversations. You know, it's funny. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Somebody told me, I think this actually was when I was working at the Oscars, but I remember talking to somebody and they said, every, everybody thinks they know how to create a social media strategy because they use Facebook. And it's like, that's not, those are not the, those are not the same things. No. And I talked to someone else who worked for a major car company and she ran social for them. And she said, literally like, you know, other marketing people or brand people, whatever, like they would, they would come to her and they would go, okay, here's a, you know, here's our commercial, here's our whatever, make it go viral. And she'd be like, that's not how, like, that's not how this works. Right. So I, I completely, completely understand. I think there's a couple of things. I think the first thing is you have to speak their language, not yours. So when you're talking to a brand or a business or someone who is not necessarily quote unquote creative, you know, it's also interesting. There's two different types, right? There's the type that knows they're not creative and is sort of intimidated by creativity. And then there's the type that maybe thinks they're more creative than they are. Or they, right? know, they know just enough to be dangerous. Right, exactly. But either way, I think one of the things that people run into is 
you need to communicate sort of on their terms and in their language and where they're at. So there doesn't feel like there's this huge disconnect of they're talking about X, Y, and Z. And I don't, you know, I, I don't either believe in it or I don't know what they're talking about, or I feel stupid, or I want to sell more products and they're talking about creativity and what, you know, whatever, right? I don't care about the creative process. I care about more sales, like that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So one, so I think it's speaking their language. I also think that your creative work and the way you present it to them needs to align with the outcome or goal they want. And a lot of times I think creative people, like just hypothetically, let's say like you're creating a show, you might know that, but if you're not expressing, you see a lot of times people pitch creative ideas and go, look how great this creative idea is, as opposed to pitching this creative idea is great because it's going to get you this outcome that you want. That connection to outcome gives them something to latch onto as opposed to them just trying to assess, is that a good or bad creative idea? So I'll give you an example of this, like, again, from, from when I was working on the Oscars, we would have conversations about commercials and creative ads and stuff to promote the Oscars, right? And one of the things that I would always say is the Oscars don't have an awareness problem. Everybody knows when the Oscars are on. It was one of the main advantages and like lucky things about working mm. there. It wasn't like a new movie or something that you're like, people have no idea what this is. You need to like introduce them to it. When Oscar Sunday comes, everybody kind of knows it's everywhere. They know the Oscars are on. So the challenge to me, so to me, commercial should not have been about, commercial creative for the Oscars should not have been about raising awareness of the Oscars. What they needed to be about was, and also with the Oscars, a lot of people are going to watch it every year, no matter what. A lot of people are never going to watch it no matter what. And then you have that big middle section where some years they might watch, some years they might not. To me, the commercials need to be all about not building awareness, but convincing those people who might watch, this is why you should watch this year. That's very different than the typical awareness of like, the Oscars are on Sunday, check it out, and we're going to give awards. And you know what I mean? Like everybody, everybody knows what that is. So when you're coming up with creative ideas and campaign ideas, it was not creativity for creativity's sake. And when they were being presented, it would not be hey, look at this really cool or funny commercial we came up with. It would be, here's why this is going to convince those maybe watchers to watch. Makes right? sense, yeah. And the presentation to people is reinforcing that. It wasn't just, hey, we came up with this commercial. Isn't it cool? It was, we came up with a commercial to convince these people to watch. And this is why, the explanation of why the creative is what it is, I think can help you sort of connect with, the, the brand or the client. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that and like a lot of things, some of this is semantics, right? Depending on who the client is or who the quote unquote non-creative is. And like I said, some people are just intimidated by it and don't care. Others people think they're creative geniuses, even though they don't know what they're doing, right. but understanding where they're coming from and the semantics you use in which you talk about your process or you, or your work, right? So if you're talking to a client and Let's say they don't think that they're creative at all. They're intimidated by it. They may be intimidated if you say like, oh, we'd love to have you participate in the creative process. If in their mind they go, I'm not creative, I, like that freaks them out. But those same people 
might be more comfortable and welcome the opportunity if you said, hey, we want to have you participate and share your expertise. We want to have you participate in an exploratory process. We want to have you bring, you've worked here forever. You know, even no one knows, saying stuff like no one knows your brand better than you. Right, right. Right? We want to hear about that. Might Even if you did the exact same process, but the semantics, the labeling of it, the how you present it to them mm-hmm. makes them go, oh, this is, this is for me. They now feel some ownership, invested interest in it and feel like they can contribute. Whereas they might go, I don't have creative ideas. I'm not, yeah, you know. It feels I'm, like a safe that, space for them. Right. That, that's not my thing. And the other thing, and this is, I guess, a total side note, but I'm having flashbacks to like awesome <laughs> stuff and, and dealing with brands. You know, the presentation of creative ideas, a lot of times, de- again, depending on the cl- quote unquote client or the brand or the executive or whatever, depending on who they are, they want to have some input. So you sort of know, we would sometimes serve up an idea we knew wasn't good and we didn't want mm-hmm. to let them kill it. So they didn't kill the good one. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, because if we just went in there and we're like, you know, they feel pressure, self, self-imposed pressure mm-hmm. to give, you ask someone to give notes or feedback, they're going to give notes and feedback. For sure. Right. So I think it's also being strategic about how you present stuff to them and knowing like, oh yeah, I'm going to let you feel like you weighed in and we're like, yeah, this is terrible or whatever. So we could protect the thing. We're not just going to go with the thing that's gold. And then you feel like you have to give some notes and you screw it up. What about, what about making them feel like the idea is theirs? Yeah, it can definitely, it can, again, it depends so much of this is personality driven right, right. on who it is. That can definitely help. I think making them feel, I don't know that you need to make them feel that it's theirs, but I think making them feel involved in the process and that mm. they had input and I think making them feel heard, yeah. you know, so when you're doing, one of the things I always recommend people do with clients is, you know, if if you ask them first sort of stuff about what they want, what they're talking about, and then use their words back to them Mm. in your presentation, they feel really hurt, right? right? And again, some of this is about how you package it. Let's say you're pitching a show and you're talking to them about what they want. And maybe you ask them like, how do you think of the brand? Or what do you think the brand doesn't signify? And you're able to use some of those words in your presentation and you come back and you go, you know, let's say they give me an example of a brand, just one you worked with or just a random brand. Amazon. Okay. So let's say that you were going to create a show for Amazon and you met with Amazon. They said, look, we're not Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. right? Our, like in, in every way. So you might have a pitch for a show that let's say is aimed at a certain type of book reader. And when you present it, maybe part of your presentation is the show for people who wouldn't be caught dead in Barnes and Noble. Right. So you're mirroring back what they've, what they You're just mirroring yeah, yeah. back some of their own language. And that person goes, oh, they, they, you know, they get me. Like yeah, this, yeah. This, this, <laughs> they might not even realize that they basically served up the language to you. For sure. Um, but I think that's really helpful. And I think it seems obvious, but I think a lot of people don't do it, right? They fall in love with their own creative thing and they just sort of ignore those specific phrases that other people used. Yeah. No, it's great advice. Cool. All right. This has been awesome. I hope. <laughs> it for it's, sure has. I should say it seems awesome to me. Yeah. Uh, no, it was super helpful. Questions. 
And these are all topics that I know lots of people are interested in and we haven't actually talked about on the show. So I appreciate you giving me the excuse to, to talk about them. Uh, so let people know where they can connect with you, find out more about what you do, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. So, so first of all, you can check out jaraudio.com. We've also got great blog blog where we post weekly on there, but also check me out on Twitter at jar underscore Roger and on LinkedIn as well. Love to have conversations and reach out, ask any questions. Cool. And for me, I'm all over the place. First of all, if you're liking the show, please tell someone about it. I really appreciate it. And if you do mention that on Twitter and tag me, I will retweet you. So you'll reach my 25,000 followers. So that's a bribe. If you haven't gotten my newsletter, go to fortheinterested.com slash subscribe. My skill sessions are at joshspector.com slash sessions. You'll learn how to do things like get clients, newsletter in five minutes a day and all sorts of fun stuff. If you'd like to talk to me about hiring me as a consultant, joshspector.com slash consulting. I'm on Twitter all the time at jspector. And if you would like to come on this show and be a guest and ask me three questions, just go to joshspector.com slash questions and you can submit your questions and apply to do so. And that's about it. Thank you for your interest and I will see you next week.